once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. We are pleased to bring you the message from this week's worship service. For more information about this message, this week's teacher, and to watch or see other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Let me pray for us, and uh, let me lead us this morning into Jeremiah 29 after we pray. God, thanks for this time together. Thank you as we pray each week that uh, you have given us the great privilege by your grace to come before you, to open your word, to gather as your people, and to have your word um, shape us and mold us and make us into what you would have us be. Convict us where we need to be convicted. Encourage us where we need to be encouraged. God, we believe and know that your scriptures are truth, that they're living and active, that you use them to pierce our hearts and to soften our hearts. May we have ears this morning to hear from you. May we have eyes this morning to see through your lens, through your eyes, what we need to see. And may we have eyes to see your beauty, your greatness, your love, your grace. Holy Spirit, would you fill me as your vessel? Would you fill this place with your presence, doing your work among us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I think this goes without saying, and, and I, but I'll say it anyway, and it's not to be uh, condemning any way, in any way, but just simply a, an observation of reality. And that is, we are a selfish people. We, we, th- we think a lot about ourselves most of the time, our world is oriented around us. I've jokingly said for years and years, heard it from a friend many years ago, that I, left unto myself, I will live in a Jethocentric world where everything is about me, everything's centered on me. And uh, I, I say that goes without saying. There was an article that was published recently, uh, November of 2014 to be exact, in, in a British newspaper that said humans... This is the headline. Humans are naturally selfish, study finds. <laughs> Shocker. I'm sure the, the British folks over there were really pleased that their tax dollars went to that study. Do, do, do we really need a study to find out that we're selfish? We can just simply observe our own hearts, observe the people around us, observe the kids around us. We have four children, and, and I'm pretty convinced that one of the first words that they learned for all four of them was mine taking what's not mine, declaring that it is mine, and and this selfish nature that we have is a part of the sin nature. And if we're not careful, this selfish nature will impact everything, will bleed into everything that we are and everything that we do, even our ability to love where we live. Because here's what happens a lot of times. Um, We love where we live, the place where God has placed us, the city, the neighborhood that we're in, oftentimes is contingent upon whether or not things are going well for us. So if things are going well for me personally, but not going well for the place that I live, if I'm flourishing but the place where I'm living is not flourishing, it can be very easy for us to say, well, that's okay because things are going well for me, and we turn a blind eye to what's going on around us. Maybe we acknowledge it, but we don't do anything about it. Maybe we see it, but we don't pray for it. Maybe we are aware of what's going on, but we're not working. We're not moving towards it in a way to bring God's kingdom into that place. 
This morning, we're going to be talking about two specific ways that we'll see in the text that God encourages us to love where we live. And it's, it's, a, it's really about our work and about our prayers, about how we pray and how we work. If you've been with us this series, I'll just do a very brief recap. The first week, we, we walked through really the big storyline of the Bible to, to show that God cares about his people and the places where they are. And the creation mandate that we'll talk about here in a minute. The second week, we talked about how we are to be a new community in the places where we are. We establish um, God's flourishing and his presence and his kingdom in the places we are through the communities that we build from this church and moving out. Week three, we talked about the importance of of proclaiming the gospel in word and demonstrating the gospel in deed. It's both what we say and what we do that leads people into an experience and encounter with the kingdom of God in the places where we are. Last week, we tackled the the subject of of redemptive unity, of bringing God's unity to the different backgrounds, cultural, ethnic, race, to bring unity to the people of God so that we can bring flourishing to all the various distinct cultures around us. And bring renewal in those ways as well. And this week we'll talk about these ideas, these really sacred things of work and prayer. Here's the reality. Our prayers and our work are far too often centered on us. Centered on my flourishing rather than on the flourishing of my city. And it's okay to pray for things that are important to you and that are specific to you. Certainly God says, ask me for those things. But but far too often, we, we just pray for us, maybe for me, my family, what's going on in my work week, and we don't think about what's going on around us. We'll see in this text this morning that God calls his people to bring his flourishing to their cities through their work and through their prayers. Let me mention one last thing before we move into the text. Sometimes it can be really hard for us to love where we live because quite simply, we don't want to be there. We don't like the place that we're in. We don't like Atlanta. We don't like where God's put us. Maybe we've been transplanted here because of a, of a job assignment. Maybe you've ended up here for whatever circumstances, but you've, you've ended up in Atlanta or the, or the metro Atlanta area in one of these sub, suburbs out here, and you go, I just don't like this place, and it's really hard for me to love it. It's, it's that exact context, actually, that is going on in our passage this morning. Turn with me, if you will, to Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah chapter 29, it'll be on the screens, it'll be, it is in your bulletin, but certainly if you have your Bibles, turn there as well. I'm going to begin reading in verse 4. It says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city. That word welfare is the word shalom that you've heard us say often in this series. Shalom is this word that has deep thickness and meaning to it. It means completeness, peace. And really what word we use most often to kind of encapsulate what this word means is the word flourishing. 
So if you want to, you can read it that way. But seek the flourishing of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, in its flourishing, you will find your welfare, your flourishing. Now let me explain to you what's going on here. You'll see in verse 4 that it opens up that clearly Jeremiah is God's prophet, is writing to a people who are in exile in Babylon, from Jerusalem to Babylon. How did this happen? Here's, here's what happened. Jeremiah is writing a people who are scrambling for hope because this is a people who have lost home. They've lost their home. They've lost their place of worship. They've lost their city. And they've lost it because for years now, for many years, for generations, they have been an unfaithful people. They've been an idolatrous people. They've worshiped other gods in the place of God, and they've had moments of repentance and and coming back to God. But, But by and large, these southern tribes of Israel that are left, it's called Judah, have been an unfaithful people. And so God has been prophesying to them for quite a time now, specifically even through Jeremiah the prophet for 30 years previous to this writing, saying, repent, there's, there's, there's discipline coming. And they don't listen. And so Babylon, this great pagan nation, this, this huge army that is taking over region by region and city by city and much of the known world and in the Middle East, is, becomes this, this nation becomes the... the the rod of discipline of God for his people. A few years prior to this, Babylon had been trying to expand its empire, and they attacked Egypt. They invaded Egypt, and they, they, Egypt had some allies that came alongside of them, and Judah, God's people, were one of those allies that came alongside of them to help defeat Babylon and push them back to where they didn't take over Egypt. And so the leaders of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar that you read about in the Bible and the other leaders of Babylon said, okay, I know who you are. I'm marking who these people are that came alongside of Egypt and I'll be back. I'll get my revenge. And so it's at this point that Jeremiah is writing because Babylon has returned and they remember Judah. And they said, remember what you did and now we're we're back to make you pay your dues. So they take Judah into exile. This actually happened the first time, the first remnant deportation of God's people from Jerusalem and from Judah happened in 605 BC. It was, it was the second time that they came in and invaded and, and took out a whole nother group of people, 597 BC, that's most likely where this is taking place, this writing of Jeremiah. And they came in and they destroyed the city and they took over 10,000 people in Jerusalem and they took them to Babylon in shackles to be their slaves, to be under their oppression. These people are looking for something or someone to save them from their plight. And so what they do is there begins to surface all these false prophets. Jeremiah acknowledges this in his writings. He says, don't listen to them because they're telling you that you're going to be free soon, that this is not going to be a long exile. This will be over shortly. And Jeremiah, is the true prophet of God, enters into this and he says, actually, you're going to be there for a while. Lay down roots, stay and work, because you're going to be there, actually, he tells them, 70 years. Generations will actually take root there in that foreign land. 
This is in some ways a microcosm of the larger biblical narrative where exiles are in a strange land waiting for restoration, longing for hope, yearning for home. One, one other thing before we look at the specific ways in which God has instructed them, look at verse 4 again and listen to this language. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles, and listen, notice this, whom I have sent into exile. Yes, it was because of God disciplining them, and it was a result of their, their, uh, uh, their disobedience, and it was certainly at the hands of the Babylonians, but this, don't mistake this, this was all at the sovereign hand in the providential work of God to say, I have placed you there. This is not by mistake. This is not by accident. This is purposeful. I've put you there. It's into this context that God speaks through Jeremiah, and he gives them two overarching instructions. The first one is this. I've already mentioned it, but he he essentially says this. Work, this is the first point, work for the flourishing of that place. Work for the flourishing of your city. Listen to some of the imperative verbs that he says in verses 5 and 6. He says this. He says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. He says, build, live, plant, eat. And then he goes on to say, multiply. This is, this is language that would have been incredibly shocking for them to hear. I want you to put yourself in their shoes. You have just been taken from your home, placed in a foreign land where people are not like you and and they don't worship like you and you're under their oppression and you are essentially their slaves and you're longing to go back home and God says to you work stay there build don't just build but live there plant don't just plant but eat what you plant in other words do life there invest in it this would have been shocking to them For them to long to be going home, and God says, no, stay and work the land. Stay and multiply. And and the language here that Jeremiah is using is, it hearkens us back to what God said from the very beginning to mankind with Adam. You remember this from week one, where you have the, the cultural mandate, where God says, the creation mandate, where God says, to Adam in Genesis 1.28, he says, be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the earth. That means to rule and to reign over the earth, to work the land. He tells them in, again in Genesis 2.15, he says to work and to keep the garden. So that word, those words, work and keep, we could say that God is telling him to be a guard, uh, to be a gardener and to be a guardian over that garden, over that place. To seek the flourishing of this garden so that everything that comes in it under your dominion over your reign would flourish there. Since sin comes into the world and things are broken and things begin to fall apart from there. But I want you to think about that idea of being a gardener and a guardian. If you're a good gardener, which I am not, just in my backyard this year, I tried to grow tomatoes and pepper plants and it was a miserable failure. And rabbits kept eating them, and no matter what fence I put up around them, those rascals got in there. I don't know how, but they did. But that's part of my point. Think about this. If you're a good gardener, what you're doing is you're surveying, you're observing, you're studying 
Your garden, the place where you're trying to grow and bring flourishing to that place and have dominion over it, you're, you're looking at it and you're going, okay, now if there's parts over here that aren't getting sunlight, I need to do something about that. Maybe I need to, to, to enter into that part of the garden and take away this part where sunlight, this branch to where sunlight can get to this. Maybe it's weeds and, and thorns that are choking out over here, and so I need to get in there and I need to pluck those things out. Or maybe it's a water source that's been blocked upstream to where this part of the garden is not getting water. Or maybe it's a fence that's not working. It's not doing its job. It's broken down and animals are coming in and they're eating your plants, your, your crops. So as a good gardener, you're watching those things. You're not just standing by idly and looking at all this happening and going, okay, I'm not going to do anything to, um, to magnify and accelerate flourishing in this place. You're going to be a, gar- a good gardener and you're going to guard it so that flourishing will happen. This is the language that we need to enter into. It's the people of God. God has put us in a place and it's purposeful and he's asked us to work and to keep it and to multiply there. To fill the earth with God worshipers. And so as we look at the places around us, we need to be like a good gardener. We need to look at it and we need to say, what's broken here? What are the systems in which there's great brokenness to where God has placed me as a follower of him to where I can actually have influence there in that place? This part of, uh, of the place around me is not getting sunlight, so to speak. What can I do about that? Let me ask you actually a series of questions that I want you to think about. As you think about where God has placed you in your work, here's some questions that you can ask. First, what are the broken systems in my city? What are the broken systems in my city? And secondly, has God uniquely positioned me to be an agent of his shalom in that place, in those places and systems? Now, some of us are, are not in jobs. Some of us are not in situations where we feel like we have the influence and the power to enter into really big, complex, broken systems in the places where we live. But some of us are. Some of us are in those places. Some of us are in real estate. We're developers. And one of the things that we can enter into is that we wouldn't just develop places and build, like this is talking about, in a way that's only beneficial to me and my pocketbook but that we actually look at the place where we're developing structures and buildings and homes and commercial places, and and we look at it and we go, what's going to be the absolute best for the people that are there to bring flourishing in a way that's not just for me and how I can benefit, but it's really about them and how they can benefit. Some of us are in government locally, maybe even statewide and nationally, but we're in government and politics, and certainly we can look at the landscape of politics now for just a glimpse and see how broken it is, and God has uniquely positioned some of us in those places to where we can be agents of his redemption and his shalom and his flourishing in those places, and it sounds daunting, but we can begin to take baby steps by faith, trusting that God will use us to bring his shalom to those places and to those broken systems. For many of us, if not most of us, maybe that's not our reality. Our reality is that we work jobs that you go, I, it's not that majorly influential in the society and the culture around me, but that still matters. Here's a question for you. Am I doing excellent work for the glory of God? Am I doing excellent work 
for the glory of God? Or am I just going to work, going through the motions, and not really caring about doing excellent work to the glory of God? Because, friends, remember, remember this. Some people won't hear your gospel until they respect your work. Remember, this is still about introducing people to Jesus. That as we go about our work, that people would respect it in such a way to where they actually begin to say, this guy's different from me, this lady is different from me, and she's kind of a freak, and I don't really understand why she believes what she believes, but man, I'm beginning to respect him or her so much because of the work that they do that I'm actually gaining an ear for what they believe. I actually had a, uh, recently, just a couple weeks ago, a conversation with a guy here in our church who has had awesome inroads into conversations with a, uh, with a Muslim friend who the conversation came about because they've been doing business together for about a year. And over the course of that year, this friend has begun to respect this man so much in the work that he's doing that, they, that he's been able to enter into conversations around Jesus with him. Are you doing excellent work for the glory of God? Also, am I seeking to bring the kingdom of God and his shalom to my workplace? And this doesn't mean that we walk in every day with our Bibles and we hold them up and we say, anybody that doesn't believe this, then, you know, we, we're not coming in that way, but we're coming loving and caring, compassionate, empathetic, moving into the lives of the people around us in such a way to where the shalom of God, the flourishing of God is happening in our coworkers' lives. And they look at us and they go, wow, it's unique, it's different. And then through the work that you do together, there's flourishing that begins to happen through your work in the places where your work takes you. One last question to think about is this. What is the history of my city that influences the traditions and practices of my city? Part of being someone who works for the flourishing of their city is being someone who studies their city and its history. How do we end up where we are? How did we get here? How did Johns Creek get here? How did Alpharetta get here? How did Duluth get here? How did, how did all these suburbs end up where they are? And as you enter into the stories of our past, I guarantee you, you will see a lot of brokenness and a lot of things that you'll go, oh, I don't like that, that's ugly, but you know about it, and then you can begin to understand even better now how to pray and work for the place that you are because you understand its past, and you can move into those areas of brokenness and lead others there with you. Speaking of prayer, that's the second thing that God told his people through Jeremiah in exile. He says, essentially pray for the flourishing of your city. Look at verse 7. He says, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. I want you to pause and think about this. I want you to think about how shocking and mind-blowing this instruction would have been for them to receive. Again, they're in exile. They've been taken against their will into an oppressive government that's not their own, where they, they are essentially slaves and servants in a pagan land. It would have been completely natural for them and understandable for them and logical for them to pray for the destruction of Babylon well before they ever prayed for the welfare of Babylon. They would have said, God, deliver me from here in this awful place and take me home. 
And God says, no, 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 stay, work, pray for the welfare of that place because in a way that you don't fully understand, the welfare of that place is wrapped up in your welfare. And as you bring flourishing, it flourishes. And as it flourishes, you flourish. I love this quote from Walter Brueggemann. He says this. He said, this imperative bestows upon this vulnerable, small community a large missional responsibility in this way. Uh, responsibility. In this way, the community is invited into the larger public process of the empire. Such a horizon prevents this exilic community from withdrawing into its safe, sectarian existence and gives it, to work, gives it work to do and responsibility for the larger community. Here's what he's saying. He's saying through this, these instructions to work and to pray as it draws this community out of wanting to separate itself from the bad around them, from the foreign around them, and become its own ingrown community that doesn't do anything because they know God and they keep God to themselves and his shalom to themselves. It, doesn't, it, it keeps them from doing that and forces them to move incarnationally into this place around them to bring God, God God's kingdom and his shalom. Praying for your place is one of the best and easiest first steps that you can take. Praying for your neighborhood, praying for your community, praying for your city. Start small, think big, but start with just maybe one neighbor that you begin to pray for. And, and let me just say this, you might feel like that you are past the point of no return with, your, with neighbors around you. What I mean by that is that in the same way that you know, you've, you're in your 12th or 15th conversation with someone and it's too late to ask them what their name is, you know, you know you're at that point with them where you go, okay, if I ask what his name is now, then he's going to know that all this time I've been pretending and that's going to be really embarrassing and like he hasn't picked up on all the times that you said, hey, bro, what's up, man? But we convince ourselves, well, it's too late now, so I'm just going to kind of keep doing what I'm doing. We, we can do that with neighbors. I've, I've lived next to you for five years. I know you're only three doors down, but I, I just, we've never talked and it would just be awkward. Here's my admonition to you this morning. Embrace the awkward for the sake of the gospel. Embrace the awkward for the sake of the gospel. I'm actually very convicted by this because there's a guy that lives directly across from me. Directly across from me, and I can tell by his body language, by the way that when I wave at him and he doesn't wave back, that he doesn't want to know me. That literally happens. It's happened so many times. I, I'm, you know, I wave, and he's walking his dogs, and he doesn't even raise the hand. He just kind of does this number, and I'm going, man... And so I've taken that as, well, I don't want to press too hard. I don't want to, you know, I just want to wait for the right time. You know what I need to do? I need to walk my tail across the street and say, hey, you know what? We've lived next to each other for a year and a half, and I am so sorry I haven't introduced myself. What's your name? My name's Jeff. How long have you lived here? Like, I do that with y'all right now on this stage, and I go, how easy is that, right? But I stand on my driveway, and it's like my feet are in cement, and I can't go. But I'm pretty convinced of something. The more that we pray for our neighbors, the more that we will love them in such a way that it moves us to action. Our prayers lead to love, and our love leads to action. Begin to pray for your, for your neighborhood. Pray for your place and watch what God does for your love for that place. Pray for your neighborhood and watch what God does for your love for your neighbors. Pray for your government officials and watch what God does in you to where you actually want to be involved in such a way to where you are aware of what's going on at the local government level around you because you love those people and you love your place. Let me read you a couple of excerpts from uh, Gene Harville's story. 
Many of you know Jean. She's a longtime member here at Perimeter. And she has lived in Duluth. She moved to Duluth in, in November of 2002. And she says this. She has done such a phenomenal job of living this out. She says, I began prayer walking my neighborhood and the downtown historic area of Duluth not long after she moved there. She said, I wanted to get to know the local businessmen, but businesses in the downtown historic area, so I purposefully went to each one and introduced myself, bringing loaves of friendship bread and letting them know that I was prayer walking the area and praying for their businesses. I love that because I don't know of any person, whether they're Christian or not Christian, even if they're a devout atheist that would say, please don't pray for my business. I just really would rather you not do that because they know deep down in their hearts there might be a God, and if there is, I certainly want his blessing. And so the fact that she went to them and said face to face, hey, I just want you to know I'm praying for your business. Always helps to bring food with that as well. (laughs) She said it was a great icebreaker and helped me know the owner, the business, and to be supporting them with my patronage. Shopping locally has been a long-time theme for me, she says. She says I also went to the police department, often bringing them baked goods as well and and, uh, letting them know that I appreciated their service and was praying for them as well. She said, I've been involved in praying and prayer walking the Duluth area since I moved in. And a prayer team started with just two of us. The prayer team grew and uh, became a monthly prayer time. They prayed with city managers and church leaders in the city hall. And they continue, even to this day, to meet monthly and pray together. Jean has been super involved, not just when praying uh, for her neighbors and for her city, but just been involved in the city itself. She's, she's literally the face of the Duluth Fall Festival. I know for a time, I think it may even still be there, her face is on the, on the billboard for the Duluth Fall Festival in Duluth. She dresses up as a scarecrow and just enters into that, uh, that event with everything that she has for the sake of engaging in relationships and engaging in a place to where she can bring God's redemptive work. Uh, she's been involved with the city council, served on the ethics board, uh, and has gotten to know the mayor and city council and whatever uh, and whatnot. Uh, she says, in our neighborhood, we have hosted chili cook- cook-offs, picnics, neighborhood, and yard sales. Now, you may hear all that and go, wow, she's got energy. She's involved in a lot of stuff. I, that overwhelms me. And so let me just say this. Um, if you're not there yet, if you're, like, if you're saying, man, I just I don't know that I could enter in at that level that much as Jean has in Duluth, I would say this. Begin by praying. We can all pray. Not prayer that doesn't lead to action, but begin to pray and say, God, where would you want me to move and act in this place for your glory and for your purposes. How would you want me to do that? Here's how I would say that too. I would encourage you, pray big prayers to a big God and expect big things. Don't wait on us, us being these people who speak from stage and have theological degrees and training and all that. God doesn't want to just use pastors and preachers, he wants to use, he longs to use people who say, well, am I equipped for that? Am I prepared for that? But when we begin to be a praying people, expecting big things from a big God, he shows up and he uses us in ways that will blow our minds. And it's deeply encouraging. This passage ends, or at least for this morning, what we're looking at ends with this really familiar verse. Look at verse 11 of Jeremiah 29. It says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, there's that word again, shalom, completeness, peace, flourishing, not for evil, to give you, an, a hope in, to give you a hope in the future. 
Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. This is a verse that many of us are familiar with. If we've grown up in or around church, we know that this is, this is something we quote often. We say often, maybe it's plastered on a, on a picture in our house, or maybe we quoted it at our graduation saying, I know the plans that God has for me, declares the Lord, plans for a welfare, hope, and a future. But that's really not the context of this verse. The context of this verse was pointing to something much, much bigger than just our own personal welfare. It's actually pointing to one who would come, who would be Shalom. Listen, our ultimate hope is not in the flourishing of a city. Our ultimate hope is in the fellowship with a king. The prince of Shalom himself, the prince of peace, Jesus. It's all about him. Without him, there is no flourishing. Without him, there is no shalom. If we just go into places and try to make them better apart from Jesus and without pointing people to Jesus, then why are we doing it? I long for my neighbors to experiencing the flourishing of God's kingdom through my life so that they may bend the knee to King Jesus and have their lives radically changed. Let me say it to you this way. I love movie trailers. I love them. A lot of times, I am content to watch a movie trailer without ever watching the movie, because I feel like I can get in three and a half minutes what I, you know, it's like I watch it for an hour and a half to two hours, and I go, well, that was all in the trailer, and I enjoyed the trailer, and now I just spent two hours watching something that I could have watched in three and a half minutes. But trailers, oftentimes, they tell us about the feature attraction, right, in such a way to where we make a decision, do I want to be a part of that or not? You know, like maybe if you saw the trailer to Sharknado, you, you said, I, I know I'm not going to watch that, right? You, saw, you see a trailer to some horrible movie, all these horror movies that come out around Halloween. I, I see these trailers on TV, and I'm just like, who are these people that would watch that? If you're one of those people, I'm not judging you. I just don't understand you, okay? <laughs> I see those trailers, and I go, no, I just turned the channel. I'm like, no, I'm not watching that. I'm not even about to go to that movie. I rent it on the red box in two months or whatever. But there's other trailers, right, that we see and we're captured by it, we're captivated by it, we're brought into the story in such a way to where we go, I, I want to be a part of that, I want to see that. Our lives here on this earth is that we have, as, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we have this incredible opportunity to be trailers for the coming kingdom of God. To bring God's flourishing to the places and to the people around us, the, and the places where God is put us in such a way to where they look at us and they look at the shalom that we're leading into this world by the power of God through us and they look at us and they interact with us and they go I want to be a part of that and you say if you think this is great if you think this is cool wait for the future presentation wait till he comes again wait for the new heavens and the new earth when everything is fully made complete and shalom comes in all of its form but what your job is right now and what my job is right now as followers of King Jesus is to proclaim his shalom and his name and his kingdom and his love and his mercy and his grace in such a way that where people around us and the places around us flourish and they say, I want to be a part of that. And you say, come on, let's do it together and let's anticipate together what's to come. Let me pray. Father, thanks for this time together. Thank you for your grace in your mercy, in your word. Thank you that 
we've had the great joy of entering into this topic over the last five weeks. Lord willing, with open hearts to say, Lord, shape me, mold me, make me into what you would have me be, that I may be used by you to bring the the flourishing kingdom of God in the places where you have put me. God, we love you. Jesus, we're in awe of you. That you would come and rescue us from our sin and not just leave us there, but to draw us unto yourself, to make us new, to change us from the inside out, and then to put us in specific places on this earth to be your agents of reconciliation, redemption, and shalom. Would you use us as exiles in a foreign land to work and to pray in such a way that brings you glory? In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day. Thank you.